So, it's uh, Parshas Bamidbar this week, but we're going to talk just a, f- a minute or two about Bamidbar, but really I want to go to Shavuot, because it's the week before Shavuot. Obviously, next week we're not having a shir. Next week we're getting the whole Torah, so we don't need a shir. <laughs> um, but we know that this week's Parsha is also connected to Shavuot. The Gemara tells us that we always read the Parsha of Bamidbar before Shavuot, and there's many reasons given for it. One of them has to do with the name of the Parsha, the fact that it was said in a desert, Bamidbar. Um, and we know that with great emphasis, the Torah was given in a Midbar, was given in a desert. Why? Because... Um, Two reasons. First of all, we know that a desert is a place that is hefker, it's ownerless. The halacha is if you find something in a, in, a, in a desert, you can keep it because no one has a, no one has a monopoly on, on a desert. It's like an ownerless place. And it's there to emphasize that the Torah is completely free for all. Everyone can access it and everyone should access it. And it's not, no one can have a monopoly. It's different to the other crowns that the Mishnah mentions like kahuna, priesthood, which is exclusive for Kahanim, or the sovereignty, which is exclusive for the Davidic dynasty and so on. When it comes to Torah, Torah, every, every Jew has to be able to access the Torah and should access the Torah or Torah learning. Also, a desert is a, a place which is barren, it's empty and it's a symbol and a lot of times of a symbol of humility and we know that a prerequisite to learning Torah, everyone can access Torah but the prerequisite to learning Torah which is God's wisdom is the concept of being humble another reason why it was given in a midbar, in a, in a, in, in a desert. Also, this week's Parsha um, is the mitzvah of counting the Jewish people, right? We begin the book of Bamidbar, which in, in English is always called Numbers. It's the book of Numbers, right? We count. Counting, why do we count? Or why were the Jewish people counted? The Shaloh, I think it was, who said that counting the Jewish people made them into something which is called a Dover Shebeminyan. It's a counted thing. It means it gives them importance, it gives them significance, right? Uh, the Gemara, when it discusses when something not kosher falls into something kosher, and we have the concept of bitul, which is like if you have 60 times as much, it'll become, or majority, it'll become nullified or neutralized, whatever the case is. There are certain things that don't become neutralized or don't become nullified. One of them is called a dovashibaminya, something which is counted. Although like you, if you, if you buy it, by the way, you say, I could have two of these or three of these, although they're counted things, it means they're more important, they don't necessarily become um, nullified. So the Jewish people were made by counting them, they're made into a dovashibaminya, right? Which, of course, connected to Matan Torah, which is when we became a nation, an important nation, and so on. But also the concept of counting means, counting has an interesting contradiction to it, in a way. On the one hand, counting the Jewish people emphasizes that there's no one that's more superior than the other, so everyone's equal, everyone just gets one count. On the other hand, it also highlights the importance of every person, that everyone is counted. You get that? In other words, everyone, no one's missing. Which has to do with what we spoke on our Friday, we mentioned in the video, that we... When Hashem said at Matan Torah, He spoke to the individual. In the singular. He spoke to each individual individually, because every person is unique and every person is special and so on and so forth. I just want to also mention that this year, Shavuot is very close to Shabbos. It's not to do with counting, but uh, there's only one day between Shabbos and, and Shavuot, which has an interesting connection. I thought I'd just mention it out of interest. There's, some, there, there's over there on the table. There's more. Okay. So... Um, the, uh, the, this, the significance is that the, the Gemara tells us that everyone agrees that the Torah was given on the Shabbos. 
right? Which, by the way, is just out of interest. It's very fascinating. Because the way the calendar is structured today, the first day Shavuot can never fall out on Shabbos. Mm. Right? You realize that? Just, just the way it is. Just the way, we know the calendar is a certain structure that certain Chagim can never fall out on certain days. Middle there's a hand over there. Sorry about that. Um, so, for example, you know, Rosh Hashanah cannot fall out on a, on a, on a Sunday, Monday, uh, Wednesday, and Friday, all these kind of things, right? So, Shavuos can never fall out on a Shabbos. And what's interesting is that, that David, uh, the Torah was given on a Shabbos, and David HaMelech, King David, whose yard side is on Shavuos, he also passed away on a Shabbos. So in those days, before we had the system of calendar we have today, where things were more flexible, Shavuos could fall out on a Shabbos, and in fact, those two events happened on a Shabbos. And yet it can't fall on Shabbos today. But nevertheless, there's an intrinsic connection between the Torah and Shabbos, right? Which is interesting. Uh, so much so that the Gemara says that Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, is referred to as Shabbos. Which just came from Lagba Omer. The Zohar tells us that the colleagues of Rabbi Shimon Bayochai, because of his greatness, used to refer to him as Shabbos. So, what, yeah, so what's, the, what's the connection between Shabbos and Torah, just very briefly? One of the ideas is because what does Shabbos bring? Shabbos brings menucha, calmness, tranquility, rest. What does that mean, rest? We're not talking about physical rest. We're talking about lack of tension. It brings a certain inner peace, right? Calmness. Why is that? Because we know, we've talked about this many times, that Hashem created the world in a, in a, in a way of, of great multiplicity, where the world is a very fragmented place. Because everything is different from each other. Every blade of grass is different. And it's the power of Shabbos that comes and unites everything and brings us the deeper purpose behind the uniqueness of every single individual creation and puts it all together under the one master, under the one purpose, which brings obviously that concept of calmness, which is exactly what Torah does. That's what Torah is there for. Torah is there as a guide, as a moral code for us that no matter what we're doing and no matter who does what and we all do different things, but we all under one banner, under one purpose, under one goal, so therefore that removes the friction, removes the tension between one creation and another and brings the concept of calm. So I just thought we'd just mention that because it's interesting. All right, what I want to do today, specifically focus on, on, on Shavuos and, and the giving of the Torah. So I want to first of all share with you a very interesting insight, but let me just give you a bit of context. There are, we know there's different styles of learning and different ways that we can analyze different things, right? So one of the ways that we find often in many, many different sfarim that the way they will uh, analyze or approach a Agadaic text, which means a philosophical text, a, a sort of a Midrashic text, We'll approach it from a halachic analysis perspective, which makes it very interesting. Right, I think we've done something like this before. So I'm going to share with you a very fascinating insight about the famous argument that Moshe Rabbeinu had with the angels about who should get the Torah, right? But attack it from a halachic perspective. It was a halachic argument. And we'll see from the text of the Gemara of why Moshe Rabbeinu eventually won the argument. And at the end, I'm going to try and derive from that some lessons we can learn in terms of how we have to approach the Torah. Yeah. So he didn't do it from a Kabbalistic perspective, what would be an alternative? Well, normally we, we do it from a Kabbalistic perspective, a philosophical perspective, a perspective, right? It's not often that we combine the two. In other words, we know that part of the Torah learning, there's a Lachi part of Torah, and then the, the Gemara has parts of the Gemara which are not known as a Lachi Gemaras. They're known as what we call Agadal, which is like Midrashi Gemaras, or like Medrash, right? Where, we, where they're normally understood philosophically. So, so like the argument between the angels and Moshe Rabbeinu, it's a philosophical argument. You know, the, the angels say, but Torah belongs more in heaven because it's such a holy thing. Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, it belongs down here. And he brought proof. 
that's more philosophical, yeah. But I'm going to show you a very interesting halachic perspective that underlies this whole argument and how we, and how we, and how we uh, approach it. Okay. I'm sorry? Somebody once said to me, she is a Torah Jew, I'm not sure the difference is. I don't know what that means. Oh, you mean to say that a person is halachically Jewish and not halachically Jewish? Is that what they meant? No. Or they're a hal- halachically abiding Jew? No, I don't know what that means. It's all, it's all one Torah, as, as far as last time I checked. Um, all, all, comes from the same, all comes from the same God. No, we're all uh, striving to be everything, because it's one Torah. No, but I'm talking now about systems of learning. I'm not talking about what type of Jew we are. Right. Okay. So have a look at your land. Now, we have to actually learn the Gemara inside. It, it's, it's a bit of text, but we'll try and, we'll try and tra- translate as best as I possible can. So, says the Gemara, famous Gemara. This is the section in the Talmud where it talks about the giving of the Torah and all the stories behind it and so on. So, Amari Bishur ben Levi. This is a Midrash, a Midrash Egemar. Bishur ben Levi says, Moshe Rabbeinu went up on high. Amru Baruch Hu, the angel said to God, Master of the universe, What's this son of a woman doing here? I Meaning, say, they were being. Like, what's this very physical person being here, right? Amar lehen, Hashem said to the angels, lekabel Torah voice, come to get the Torah, come to receive the Torah, right? Amar lefanov, the angels said to Hashem, God, chamudah genuza, this amazing treasure, she genuza lach that has been hidden with you, stored up in your treasure, so to speak. Cham meyos v'shivim v'arbon, 974 doiris generations, koidim shenivra ha'olam. That's a separate discussion of exactly what that means. But 900, it, it's been with you for 970 generations before the world is even created. You're going to give this to a, a, a person of human flesh and blood? And, and they quoted a Pasuk in Tehillim, says the, the Medrash. Who is man that you should remember him? Who is the person you should even think about him? God, our master, your glory is, and your name is in the whole earth, in the universe. Give your glory in heaven. If you want to give away your Torah, give it to us. Right? So this came time that Hashem says, it's my Torah, but I'm giving it away. The angel said, give it to us. We, we have claimed it. So Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu, you better answer them, stand up for yourself. You, you want the Torah? Put up a defense. Amar right. Lefanov. So there's a part that's missing over there because Moshe Rabbeinu was scared, it says, and he said, I'm scared of these angels, they're going to consume me. Hashem said, I'll help you, don't worry. Anyway, okay, so what was the, what was the argument? Amar Lefanov. Hashem said, so Moshe Rabbeinu said to God, Master of the universe, Torah this Torah you're giving me, what's it written in it? I'm Hashem, your God, which, who took you out of Egypt. Amalahan, so he turned to the angels and he said, I want to ask you, you went down to Egypt? You were slave to Pharaoh? What do you, what do you want this Torah for? Okay. Then he continued, to, once he got going, he got going, he says, what else is written there? You shouldn't have false gods, you shouldn't have other gods, you shouldn't serve idols. 
What, you guys live among pagans who, who, who are involved in pagan worship? What else is written there? It says you should remember the Shabbos. You work? You need Shabbos? It says you shouldn't swear falsely. What, you guys have business? You have claims? You have litigation? It says you should honor your father and mother. Do you have a mother? Do you have a father? Also it says, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't do it, commit adultery, you shouldn't steal. I want to know something. Do you have jealousy? You have an evil inclination. Hashem admitted to Moshe Rabbeinu, you're right, Torah went to us. Okay. So, what was the argument? So again, I'm, I'm going to share with you a perspective. This is what I'm going to share with you now. is discussed by many great uh, authors like the Chido, great Sephardi sage, the Cheskuni, Sheris Yaakov, the Lubavitch Rebbe has a whole talk on it. And we'll talk, we'll talk about it from, from a few different perspectives. Okay. So many of these commentaries say that the Malachim, the angels, had a halachic claim to the Torah. What was the halachic claim? So let's have a look. Have a look at your handout and let's look at Rambam. There's a, a law in laws of selling property, selling fields. Remember, when the Jews came to Israel, it was a very, very agricultural society. People owned lots of fields, right? And people bought and sold fields and so on as time went by. So there's a law, an ethical law called bar metzre, means the neighbor, essentially. Someone who has a field on the border of my field. And it goes like this. Let's have a look in the Rambam. Veloyoit, Ella, says the Rambam, not only this, what he was talking about before, but he introduces a new concept. It comes from the Gemara, obviously. Hamoicher karka someone who sells a field. L'acher to someone else. Even if you already sold it. But, so, so the scenario is like this. I, I, my, my field is for sale. My neighbor wants the field. And I decide, no, I'm selling it to someone else who lives far away. And I do that, even if I've done it. That's, that's unethical. The neighbor has first claim. Not only that, my neighbor who's on my border, he's actually able to pay and give money and buy the purchaser out. Or the remove him. Right? That doesn't matter who sold it. And even if the purchaser, even if the guy who bought the field originally is a big guy, even if he's a Torah scholar, why? If you go to the second to last line, why do you have to sell to your neighbor? Because it comes under the rubric of the halacha that's mentioned in Torah, you should do the right thing. Why is it called the right thing? So, Omru Chachamim, our rabbis tell us, since the seller is not losing or gaining either way, he just likes the other guy better. Right? But he's not losing, getting the same price. The neighbor has the first claims. Simple reason is because it's, it's good to have his property all in one place. Right? In other words, he's interested in buying property, buying a field. Right? It's more convenient for him and it's better for him to have his farm in one place, not to, not to travel to two farms, right? Simply. So therefore he has first claim 
on my field more than the person who lives down the road or lives in another suburb. Therefore, the Farshim say, the Malachim come to Hashem and say, Excuse me, you're giving away the Torah, Bar Metra, we're your neighbor. We have first claim on the Torah. That's, that's the explanation. Right? So they had, they had first claim because it's Chemdo Genuzo, it's a treasure. They said treasure up by you. And we talk about the symbolic concept of heaven. Hashem lives in heaven, whatever that means. Right? And it says, B'shosh Ola Moshe Lamore, Moshe Rabbeinu went up on high. Yeah? And they said, well, if that's the case, if you're giving away the Torah, why give it to the earth, give it to us? We are the halachic, we have a halachic right to the Torah before Moshe Rabbeinu does, because we are the Bar Metzra, we are on the border. Okay, so good, no, no problem. In which case, they have a good claim. So, what's the answer to the claim? Okay. So, obviously, if, we want, if you want to counter this claim, what we need to do is we need to have a look at the halachas, we need to have a look at the laws of Bar Metzra and see if there's any exceptions and if the exceptions would apply to the Jewish people. Right? So, the Mepharshim, all the Mepharshim bring out a number of different answers. I'll go through with them and then we're going to see why they're all problematic until we get to the ultimate answer. So they say, first of all, Bar Metzra, this halacha is only by, only by real estate. It's not by movable objects. So in the Gemara, normally, when we have the laws of business and people's estate and assets and things like that, assets are always divided into two. What we call karka and metaltalin. Karka means real estate, land, um, or things that are attached to the land, like houses, and metaltalin, which are objects, things which are movable objects, right? Um, and they all have, and they're governed by two very different sets of halachas. How you acquire them is different. It's, I mean, it's not different, but different to civil law, but it's, it's completely different. How you buy movable objects, how you buy land, all the halachas governing the two are very different. And the halach is that this din of bar metzra only applies to land. Okay, so therefore, it's, it's, it's finished. The Torah is not a real estate, the Torah is a movable object, so to speak, right? So, okay, see? That's number one. Number two, the dinner bar metzra is only if I'm selling my field. If I'm giving it away as a present, then the whole thing doesn't apply because I have the right to choose who I want to give presents to. I don't like my neighbor, I don't want to give him a present. If I'm trying to make money and I'm selling a poor real estate, so then it's not, it's unethical to say because I like the other person better, I'm selling his field. No. It's more convenient for the neighbor to have his field next to him. So therefore, I've got, to, I've got to sell it to him even I don't like him so much. But if I'm giving someone a present, a present you give to someone that you like, or you, want, or you have a reason to give a present to. So therefore, it's not unethical to say, I'm going to give it to, my, I'm going to, give it to someone far, rather than give it to my neighbor. And therefore, since the, since the Torah is a matana, the Torah is a gift, right? It's a gift. How do you know it's a gift? We say it every day when we daven. We say the Baruch Torah, we say Hashem Nosan, Baruch Hashem Noisein HaTorah. He gave us the Torah. It doesn't say He sold us the Torah, it says He gave us the Torah. Right? So since He gave us the Torah, it's considered a gift, and a gift, the Halacha of Bar Metzra doesn't actually apply. There's a third, a third, um, a third answer. third answer is that the Halacha of Bar Metzra doesn't apply to relatives. So, if my son wants to buy my field, then I'm allowed to sell it to my son. Right? I don't, have to, I don't have to sell it to my neighbor. 
So since the Jewish people are considered re- re- we re- related to God, in fact, the Torah says before we're given the Torah, the Torah, Moshe, Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, Bonim atem l'Hashem aleikeichem, you are children to Hashem. Right? And Malachim are not referred to as that, the angels are not referred to as that. So therefore, that's not law. Hashem wants to give us the Torah, has perfect right. So therefore, the Malachim lose their claim of Barmetz. A fourth answer that's given is that Moshe Rabbeinu, it says about Moshe Rabbeinu, there's a, there's a Chazal tell us, that Moshe Rabbeinu is referred to in the Chumas as Ish Eloikim, a godly man. Right? What does that mean? That means that Moshe Rabbeinu, says, the rabbis tell us, was not really a human like, like the rest of us. He was called which means sort of half, half downwards he was a person, but half upwards he was, a, he was an angel, he was a godly, he was a godly being. So Moshe Rabbeinu considered, this, he considered both. He considered like a human being, he was also considered like an angel. In which case, Moshe Rabbeinu is also a neighbor. Moshe Rabbeinu kind of half lived in heaven, half lived in heaven as well, just like the angels. So therefore, he's also a neighbor, therefore, he also has a claim to the Torah, the same, look, if I have two neighbors, who both are my border, for example, in the denim of the field, I choose which one I get to sell it to. As long as I sell it to a neighbor, fine. So Moshe Rabbeinu is also a neighbor, so therefore he gets the Torah. Okay. That's some of the counterclaims. So let's unpack whether these counterclaims are really good or not, right? First of all, when we say Moshe Rabbeinu is also a neighbor, that's not really good because Moshe Rabbeinu didn't get the Torah for himself. He, he received the Torah on behalf of all the Jewish people. Right? So that's not such a good answer. Then, there's a general problem with all these answers. The general problem is that Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't seem to claim these things. In other words, like this, we have an expression in Hebrew called Iker Chaser Min HaSefer. <laughs> if that's the case, then the main Subject is missing from the book. That's, that's the expression. The Malachim come and they say, give us the Torah. We say that they had a halachic claim called Bar, bar, bar Metzer. Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, answer them. Right? Hashem says, answer them. So what does he do? He gives them a whole spiel about what does it say in the Torah, about Anoichi Hashem Alekecha, you went to Mitzrayim, you have the story of a father and mother. Nowhere in Moshe Rabbeinu's answer is hinted any of these counterclaims. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah? If, if, the, if, the, if, if we accept, right? If we accept that the claim of the Malachim was Bar Metzra, then you would expect to find in Moshe Rabbeinu's answer some hint to the halachic counterclaims. Right? If I say, I'll pay halachic, you owe me a thousand dollars, and I give you a reason why I think halachic, you owe me a thousand dollars, your answer has to be, why? Halachic, I don't owe you a thousand dollars. Not some unrelated excuse. Why, why I, don't, I don't deserve that thousand dollars. That's not the point. I didn't ask you if I deserve it or not. I said, I have a claim to it. So Malachi was saying, they, they're not asking whether the content of Torah applies to them, doesn't apply to them. And in any way, we have, we have all these different mefarshim. I mean, that's a general question, by the way. What did it mean that Malachi wanted the Torah? Right? What does it mean anyway? What, they didn't know? They were so stupid, they didn't know what it says in the Torah? They didn't know that it's about earthly matters? But of course, it's not exactly like that. The Malachim didn't want the earthly matters anyways. They wanted the 
esoterics of Torah. They wanted to be able to connect to the spirituality in Torah. We know Torah speaks on many levels, but it speaks on many languages. It's not, and, and it speaks in, the, in, the, in human language, it speaks in the heavenly language as well. So obviously they didn't want to keep Shabbos or, or, or keep the mitzvahs the way we, 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 we wanted them, but there's still a, a very good reason why they wanted the Torah. They would still benefit from the Torah on a spiritual level. Right? So Moshe Rabbeinu saying that it's all physical, what does he mean? In other words, and where, where's the counterclaim to the halachic argument? And then, just did it, and, then, and then just let's unpack some of the other answers anyways, which aren't really, don't, don't, don't seem to be that sound. Right? We said before that one of the reasons we said that Bar Metzra only applies to land. It doesn't apply to movables. Why? There's, there's a reason for it. Why? Because we say like this. If I'm selling a field and my neighbor is next to me, and he says, listen, I'm next to you, therefore I need to buy your field. That makes sense, because if I, if, I if I sell my field to somewhere else, he can get another field, but it's not the same. That field that he will get is not the same as this field. In other words, what I am selling, he can't get anywhere else. What am I selling? A field next to him. Right? That's the ethics behind it. The ethics is that I'm selling a product which he cannot get anywhere else, and because as a neighbor, I have an ethical responsibility to, 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 to do that for him. Movable objects, I'm selling, I'm selling, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm selling a barbecue. That's a bad example these days. But anyway, I'm selling a barbecue. Okay. Right. In one store, hopefully. Yeah. Right. I'm selling a barbecue. So the guy says, I'm your neighbor. I said, this is plenty of barbecues. <laughs> What's the problem? Go to, go to, <laughs> plenty of barbecue stores around the city, right? You go to, go to a barbecue store, make sure you find one this time and bring it home. What, what, why do you want my barbecue? Ah, that's why it doesn't apply to movable objects. But that's not good enough when it comes to the Torah. The Malachim knew what they were talking about. Malachim says, you're selling an object, we want it, we're your neighbor. Hashem can't say to them, don't get it somewhere else. You can't get it somewhere else. There's only one Torah. So the reason that Barmetra doesn't apply, the ethics behind Barmetra doesn't apply to movable objects, doesn't apply to the Torah. Because Hashem is selling one thing, which is only one thing that cannot be purchased anywhere else. So therefore, Malachim do have a claim. So how can, how can we answer that because the Torah, the Torah is, not, is, is, is not real estate, right? Then we said before that it only applies to selling. It doesn't apply to give, if you give a gift. So that's not so simple. We find references to the Torah in all things, which is a separate discussion of why the Torah is called so many things. But there is a reference to Torah as inheritance. There's a reference to Torah as a gift. And there's also inherit, a reference to Torah as a purchase. I'll tell you exactly what the reference is. The reference is... Chazal tell us in, 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 in the Medrash and in Gemara Brochus, where Hashem says, Moharti, Omar HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Yisrael HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to the Jewish people, Moharti Lachem Torasi, I've sold you my Torah. Now, it's for a different shit to understand why sometimes Torah is called inheritance, sometimes it's called a gift, sometimes it's called a purchase. But the fact is that the Torah is often referred to as a purchase, it's also referred to Ki Lekach Toiv, Nasati Lachem Hashem, I've given you a good Lekach, Lekach means a purchase, a, 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 something you've bought. I've given you a good product, right? So it's not so simple that it doesn't, bar doesn't apply. Okay, so, so far all the reasons, the counterclaims that we've given for Moshe Rabbeinu, for, for the Malachim wanting the Torah because they have a claim of bar don't really hold up. And the main thing is that we don't find a hint to any of these answers in Moshe Rabbeinu's answer. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe gives the following explanation. He says like this. But I need you to look at your, at your thing, at your handout on the other side. It's number three. 
The Bar Metzger says like this. If you have a purchaser that lives far, I'm selling a field, right? Purchaser lives far away, another suburb, the neighbor's next door. Says the Rambam, coming from the Gemara. If the far purchaser, the distant purchaser, wanted to buy the field to build houses, to build homes, and the neighbor wants to buy it as a field to plant, to plant and to get produce, then I can sell it to the other guy. I should sell it to the other guy. The, purchase, the, far, the distant purchaser comes first. Because building homes, settling the land, takes precedence. Against building a home, there's no, there's no din of bar metzer. That din doesn't apply. Oh. Now, says so like this. Why do we get the Torah? What's the purpose of the Torah? What's the mission of the Torah? So we know we've said this hundreds of times, the famous Medrash brought down in Hasidic philosophy a lot, that Hashem gave us the Torah, Hashem created us, and Hashem created the Jewish nation and the Torah in order that we should build a dira lo yizbarach, a home for God in this world. Right? For a home for God, we can only build in this world, as we'll soon see. And that's why Hashem wanted the home. And what does the home mean? He wanted a dira, he wanted a home in the lowest form of existence. Right? A home where he could live. As the Medrash says, Nisave HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem desired to have what's called a dira betachtoinim, a dwelling place down here in this world. He wanted us to welcome him into this world. What does it mean, a home? We need to define the word home. A person doesn't only live in their home. Right? A person lives many places. You're not in your home, now you're here. You go to a shop, you go to, you go to I don't know, anything, right? You go to visit someone else. What, is, what does a home mean? So in, 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 in Hasidic philosophy, it defines the word home like this. A home is a place where you are there, your essence is there. What does that mean? You know, people behave, behave very differently in their home than they do elsewhere, right? It's a fact. When you go somewhere else, it depends where you're going, but normally you behave differently. It depends, right? If you go to a wedding, you dress up in a nice wedding. If you go to a sports thing, you give whatever sport. If you go to guests, you're a bit more reserved, right? A person comes home, you walk around how you want, you, you, right? you, you say what you want. Not always a good idea, but yes, you say what you want, you act how you want, you lounge around like you want, right? Why? Because when we go somewhere else, the whole of us is actually not there. Meaning, physically we're there wherever we go. But we're there for a particular purpose, and therefore a part of us is expressed there. So whatever part of us is expressed in that particular place, whether it's learning, whether it's davening, whether it's sports, whether it's entertainment, whether it's shopping, whatever the case is, that's the part that's doing that function. And the essence of who we are is kind of hidden, kind of kept behind. When we come home, our home is a place where you live. And therefore, the rest of you is not important. It's you. And therefore, I am who I am, and I do what I want. Right? When Hashem wanted a home in this world, what does that mean? Hashem didn't just want us to reveal aspects of godliness in this world. He didn't just want us to reveal some manifestation of a godly revelation in this world. He wanted us to reveal Him in this world. 
He wants to feel comfortable in this world. Now, the revelation of that will only come when Mashiach comes, right? Okay, but that's separate. But now we're bringing him here, and the fact that he lives here through mitzvahs and Torah and so on and so forth will only become much more apparent when Mashiach comes. But, but the process is happening now. So through Torah and mitzvahs, we build a home for Hashem, and we build a home for Hashem in His essence. Therefore, when you build a home, the din of Bar Metzah doesn't apply. How does it answer the overall question? Now we understand Moshe Rabbeinu's answer. Moshe Rabbeinu was fully aware that the Malachim didn't want to do kibbutz Avaim. They don't want to are their parents, they don't have parents. He was fully aware that they don't have to fulfill, don't commit adultery in the simplest sense of the word, in the sense of the world, because he knew what they wanted. He knew that they wanted the spiritual aspect of Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu knew that. And he still gave the answer that he gave. Why? He said, you are claiming Bar Metzra, you're claiming you have a lachic ride, you've forgotten the purpose of the Torah. We are buying this piece of product not because we want spirituality, not because we want aspects of godliness, not because we want to profit or benefit from it like you do. You'll have tremendous benefit from the Torah. But we don't want just benefit from the Torah. We're building a home for the essence of Hashem. Where? The way Hashem wanted one. Where? a dwelling place down here in the lowest form of existence. What's the proof that it's the lowest form of existence? Look at the Torah's application. What's the tachlis of Torah? Honoring physical parents. Overcoming a challenge and a temptation for adultery. Overcoming a challenge and a temptation to steal. Being involved in physical labor, creation of the physical world, so much so that you need a Shabbos to withdraw. Everything about the Torah is about it's about the lowest form of existence. Yes, I know that if we leave it with you, you'll also have benefit. But you won't be making the home at You won't be building the home in this world. You won't be honoring. You need to be able to apply the Torah by honoring physical parents. You need to be able to apply the Torah by, by, by the physical challenges. Because that's where the home needs to be built. And that answers the question. And therefore, the whole claim of Bar Metzra falls apart. So the claim was a good one, but because the ultimate purpose is to build a home and not to just gain benefit, not just to plant and reap, it's about building the home for Hashem, the whole claim of Bar Metzra falls apart. Just take it a little bit deeper than that, just to understand it a bit deeper, on a deeper level. So what would happen if there was a counterclaim? That the Amalachim would say, okay, no problem, we'll also build a home for Hashem. If Hashem wants to live somewhere, we'll, we'll build him a home. So, I mean, obviously, on a simple level, that's, that's not a claim. Hashem didn't want that. Hashem wanted a home in this world. But it's not just Hashem wanted a home in this world. It's much deeper. It's actually only in this world that you reveal the essence of Hashem. Why is that? Why is this world a place where the essence of Hashem can be revealed? So, Hashem has many, many ways that He can manifest Himself, Right? Hashem created spiritual worlds, infinite worlds, godly worlds, and so on and so forth. But it's in this world where Hashem's true essence is completely revealed. And let me explain to you why. When, when, when Hashem creates the higher worlds, He creates angels, all those angels are worlds where the consciousness of God is very obvious already. Right? In other words, those are not worlds which are incompatible with God's presence, correct? In other words, what's the definition of when we say Dira Betachtoinim? What's the definition, the making of a dwelling place for Hashem in the lower forms of existence? What does that mean? 
Does it mean it's a physical world as opposed to a spiritual world? No. Because you can have a, a physical world like a much more spiritual physical world. When Hashem first created the world, right, it says Hashem created a world which was physical, finite, but yet there was godly consciousness. When Adam, Adam and Chava were, were created, there was automatic godly consciousness. And then the sin happened, and Alpi Kabbalan is a very, very complex issue, although there was free choice and they sinned, but actually the original sin had to happen, because the world had to be plunged further into darkness. Why? Because it had to be plunged into a real tachtoinim, into a real lower form of existence. What's a lower form of existence? Not just a world that's physical, where not only hidden, it's a world which is incompatible with God, on the surface. It's a world where there's such a force of darkness that there's a force of clipper and impurity which fights God. Where you have, for example, a paroi that claimed that he was God. Or a, an existence that fights godliness. Not just hides godliness, but fights godliness. And in that darkness, God wants to live. Why? Because God is not just infinite. God is completely transcendent and undefined. In other words, when you say God is infinite, it means he can, he, can, he can do whatever He wants. But it's all an extension of Him. God's true infinity means the essence of God. What does the essence of God mean? That it's completely undefined. He can be darkness and light at the same time. Like the, he, can be, he can be like the famous thing, that the, like the, the, the manifestation of that in this world was the Aaron in the, the Ark in the Beis Amigdash, which took up space, didn't take up space at the same time, right? Not just infinite that he can do whatever he wants. He can, he can perform miracles. He can live in higher worlds. He can, he can create worlds. He can create infinite worlds. That's not the point. The point is even more than that, that he can, we can reveal God where he is completely shut out. We can reveal God where it's completely dark. And, and that the darkness will facilitate it. Not by eliminating all darkness, but by showing that the darkness is also part of Him. So he, He's in the clipper? Yes. The hiddenness of the clipper will have to go away, ultimately. But He created the clipper. Yeah. Right? There's a, I mean, it's a very deep thing to understand, but there's a, there's a concept. It says, Mashiach kam, ha-choshech atzmo yor. The dark, not that the, the, the light will replace darkness, the darkness will, will illuminate. What does that mean? Okay, so we need to understand exactly what that means. Obviously, the aspects, the, the, the concealment will have to go away, but the fact is, we'll realize that it's all God. That God can be even where He's not, so to speak. Even where, even where He's not. That's the manifestation of the ultimate essence of God. To build a home for God in the, in the higher world just means we're revealing Him where He's compatible anyways. That's not what God wanted. The ultimate, right? And, that, and that's not what God wanted and he's, a real home for God cannot happen there. A home is where your essence lives, as we said before. A home is where you are, not just aspects of you. A home is where the true you reveals itself. The true God can only be really revealed in a place where we can see his true power. And the true power of God's essence is when you reveal him in a world where he's not. Where he's not there. And he's shut out. And he's fought against. And it's all him. Still all him. When you can reveal that, that's the true essence. That's the true greatness of God. That's the true essence of God. Because that shows it's a God that is totally undefined. That light, darkness, compatibility, incompatibility, it's all him. Are we okay with that? And that's the home that we build for him. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu said, that we have to build a home for God. 
And it's got to be betachtoinim. It's got to be a place where there's darkness, where there's a yetzahara, where there's mitzrayim, where there's opposition, where there's challenge, where there's klipa, where there's impurity. That's where the Torah has to come. To what? To build that home. And once the Torah has to come there to build that home, the whole halachic of bar mitzrah falls apart. And therefore they have no claim. Now, to just to t- so that's, that's, the, that's this concept. But I want to just extend it a bit because I once explained this. This concept of Dira B'tachtoinim and how it relates to Matan Torah. Right? When we say that God wanted to live here, He wanted us to build a home for Him. He wanted to dwell in the lowest form of existence. Part of that desire isn't only, as we, we, we've explained this before, isn't only that He should come live here, but part of the whole mission is that the Tachtoinim, the existence itself, should build the home. You see the difference? In other words, if the purpose of creation was that he wanted to live in a low form of existence, he could have created the lowest form of existence and then move in. But he didn't want that because that's not a real dira b'tachtoinim. The real dwelling place in this world is if the world builds the home. That's the point. The point is that the world should facilitate the building. Right? Okay. So since now we understand that the whole way we got the Torah is because of this mission the reason that we got the Torah, not the angels, because exactly this mission that we have to build a home for Hashem, then we have to understand the true meaning of what it means to receive the Torah on Shavuos. Because you see, the way the Torah was given, is was given top down. Because there's no other way. Hashem had to give it to us as a gift. But that's only part one of the whole point. The real goal of Shavuos is not just, to, is not just for Hashem to give us the Torah. It's for us to take ownership over the Torah, to internalize the Torah, to make the Torah who we are. And there's so many ways to explain this, but I'm just going to give you one interesting way that I saw recently. So there's a, a pasuk. Have a look at your handout, number four. Number four, famous pasuk, right? Torah Siva Lonu Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu told us the Torah. My Rasha Kehilas Yaakov. Is it's an inheritance for the congregation of Yaakov? Incidentally, just to digress for a moment, just tell you something cute. So, we know that, that we are taught that when Hashem gave us a Torah, He said the first two of the commandments, right? And then we couldn't handle it anymore. Torah says in the Chumash, we said to Moshe Beinu, why don't you hear the rest and give us the rest of the Torah? And the rest of it, so we heard directly from Hashem the first two commandments, and the rest of the Torah was given by Moshe Rabbeinu, right? So, there are 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, correct? If we heard two of them from, from, from Hashem, so how many are left? 611. Torah has the gematria of 611. And that's how we say, Torah tzivolonu Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu gave us the Torah, he gave us 611 mitzvahs. Because the first two came directly from Hashem, Moshe Rabbeinu gave us the rest. That's just a nice little thing. Okay. What does it mean, he gave us the Torah? Moshe kehilas Yaakov. It's an inheritance for Yaakov. What does that mean? So the Gemara says, it's Gemara in, in, uh, in, uh, in Psachim. Right? Morim Sof says like this, you know, in, in, in Chumash we often have a concept where a word is written one way, but it should be read another way. Now, that happens on two levels. Sometimes we have a tradition that's actually really the way it is. In other words, sometimes we have certain words written in the Torah, and when we come read it on Shabbos, we read it differently. We read it slightly differently because we have a tradition that there's a Kriya and a Ksiv. It's written and it's one way and it's pronounced another way. 
But sometimes we read it the way it's written, but yet the Gemara says, if you really want to understand this word properly, you understand the depth of it, you have to read it a bit differently. Even though we don't actually do that in Chubbish, but in, in the Torah, but you have to understand what's really behind this. So the Torah says, so the Gemara says like this. Must, don't read the word Moirosha. Don't read it like that. Read it, it's actually supposed to be read Moirosha. Moirosha. What does the word Moirosha mean? Betrothed, engaged. But the Torah is engaged to the Jewish people, like a bride engaged to a group. Right? What does that mean? What, right? So we know that there is a relationship between the Jewish people and the Torah like a chasen and a kala, right? We know that. That's sort of Hashem gave us the Torah. There's references to Hashem saying, I'm giving you my daughter in marriage and that kind of thing. That the, I mean, there's one relationship we have where we are the bride and Hashem is the chasen, right? That's one relationship. But there's also a concept with us and the Torah. That Hashem says, I'm giving you the Torah, I'm giving you my precious daughter, look after her, and, you marry, and the Jewish people marry, marry the Torah, right? There's a famous uh, story of Rabbi Kiva Egi. You know, in Simchas Torah, we have this thing called a chasen Torah, right? What's, what's the idea of a chasen Torah? That the person who he represents, the, the, he finishes the Torah, so he's the chasen, who's the kala of the Torah, right? So they tell the story about Rabbi Kiva Egi, beautiful Rabbi Kiva Egi, was a genius, a Torah giant, lived a couple of hundred years ago. Very, very fascinating person. And uh, he lived in uh, a German town called Posen, I think it was. And his town, there was the minag that you give the rabbi chasen Torah. Right? Because he's a person that was steeped in Torah learning, so he's a person who used to get the honor of chasen Torah every single year. So I tell a story that, my, my, my Zeta told me the story, that, that on the 50th anniversary of Rabbi Kiva Eger getting chasen Torah, on the 50th Simchas Torah, he finished the Aliyah and, and he walked down and someone heard him say to, to himself, he says, you know, Santa Santa Zach, he says, very interesting, he says, he says, it's 50 years that I'm the Chosen Torah and I still don't really know the color. I don't know the bride yet, probably. Okay. That's, that's you know, the, the vastness of Torah. Okay. But we have to understand an interesting thing. Why would the Gemara say this specifically on the word Meirosha? The Pasuk says, Torah, Torah, Hashem commanded you, Meirosha, but it's an inheritance. He's given it to you as a gift. You've inherited the Torah from Hashem. Comes along the Gemara. Don't read the word inherited. Read the word engaged. I mean, what's the connection? <laughs> Why that word of all things? Second of all, what does it mean the Torah is an inheritance? We spoke about this before. Is it really an inheritance or is it a gift? So on the one hand, the, Torah, the, the Pasuk says it's an inheritance. We inherited it from Hashem. It's like an automatic gift. On the other hand, we learn in Pirka Ovis. In Pirka Ovis it says, You should prepare yourself and work hard to learn Torah. It says the Pirka Ovis, it's in chapter 2, It's not an inheritance. You've got to earn it. Make up your mind. It's an inheritance, it's not an inheritance. Right? So, just to give you a bit of context here, because today weddings are done a bit differently, but I don't know if you know this, but any chuppah that happens... Right? Any chuppah that happens, there are two parts to every marriage. And I'll give it to you the way it used to be done in ancient times because it was done actually in two separate times. So there's two parts to a marriage. One part is the legal part of the marriage where the bride becomes married to the groom. How's that done? That's called kiddushin. Or another word for it is erusin, betrothal. Right? When I used the word engage before, that's a loose term because engage just means like a commitment to marry. But it was actually more than engagement, it was betrothal. In other words, Arusa means when someone would give boy and girl, they decide they're going to get married, right? So in order to make sure that the commitment is there, the uh, guy would take out a ring in front of two witnesses, 
They make a little small, very, very understated party. And he would, in front of two witnesses, give her the ring and say, at, as normally said, under chuppah, mekodeshes, and so on. And she would go back to her house, go back to her father's home. But she was legally married, right? Why was it done like that? Because now he knows she's his wife, she knows he's his husband, and now she got a year to, there was no freezers and caterers in those days, so they had to prepare for the wedding. Put together a diary, put together a catering, put together a reception, so up to a year they had. So very often, between the erusin and the nisuin, there was a year, right? They abolished that because it was halachically and legally very dangerous, there was such a thing. Because a woman is, is, is married to a man, she's legally married, which means she's technically a married person. If something, God forbid, happens, you end up going with another man. It's like adultery, and, and then who knows what happens with the children. It's not a safe thing to do. So they decided, no, it's all going to happen at once. But today, you know why under chuppah there's two sets of borei priya and there's two sets of brachas? Right? Yeah, you, but you notice that, right? Yeah. So you make a one bracha, and then he gives the ring, then you make a show brachas. It's because these two, two separate procedures. One is, one is Erosin, one is Nisuin. What used to happen a year later? So she was technically married already, right? What used to happen? The, 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 the chuppah would happen. What's the chuppah? The chuppah was, is today is symbolic of coming together to live in one home. And the way it was done originally was then the chassan, the bridegroom, would then go and bring his wife, who's already technically married to him, bring her into his home which he has built for her and made sure that she's going to be comfortable and committed to taking care of her and, and feeding her and, and supporting her and so on and so forth, right? Oh. Comes to the Marshal, I think it is. The Marshal says that's right. The Marshal, a great commentary in the Gemara says, this is the Pshat. The Torah says, the Torah is the, the, the bride. The Torah is the gift, right? The Torah says, Torah tzivalanu Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu instructed us, gave us the Torah. It's a gift. It's an inheritance. Says the Gemara, but hold on a second. You have to understand what kind of inheritance this is. It's not fully yours. Moirasa, she just engaged you. The kid Eresin has taken place. Yes, the Torah is your wife. That's, we, we're not living together. It's a gift, it's yours. Yeah. It's your wife. But you don't even live with her. You want the Torah to become yours? You've got to go bring her home. You've got to become yours. You've got to have a chuppah still. Right? And that's, what, and, that's what, and that's what Shavuos is all about, right? Because in order to live with her, you have to go, you can't, in fact, the halacha was that during that year where the woman was an arusa, she was only engaged, Husband was not permitted to live with her while she's still in her, fa- in, in, in her father's home. It's considered a wrong thing. Ah, she's technically your wife. No. You want to live with her? You want to become one? You've got to go build, make a party. You've got to bring her, you bring it, bring it to your house. You've got to build her home. It's got to become yours. So therefore, that's what the Torah says. The ter- and and, and, and the, the Vilna Gaon says something similar. Right? Um, I just want to find this. Sorry, give me one second. Yeah. The Vildagon says it clearly. He says that when the Torah was given to us at Har Sinai, it was only like an Arus, it's only an engaged, an engaged girl, but it's only yours if you learn the Torah. If you learn the Torah and you make sure it's part of you and, it's, and you work hard in Torah. And he says it's interesting because there's a, there's a Gemara which says that the Torah is, call, is, is, is the, the, the brand of Torah, it's normally called God's Torah, right? But then there's a Pasuk in Tilly which says that it's my Torah. It belongs to the Jew. Why it says... Right? It says in Titanim, Hashem It says, a person wants the Torah of God, 
And then it says, we say, but his Torah, he'll work hard to learn it day and night. In other words, when you prepare to put in the effort, then it becomes your Torah. Right? So what's it going to do with what we said before? So before, this is, this, this is the concept. The Torah is a gift, and the Torah is the tool that Hashem gave us. But again, Torah, Torah, Hashem is just giving us the tool. If the whole purpose of us getting the Torah is to make Hashem's home in this world, then we have to make the home. Hashem only gives us the Torah so it legally becomes ours. He, he gives us the gift in a limited way. It's only in our Russo, she's only engaged. You want it to be really your Torah? You've got to work hard. And we know this concept that we said, as we talked about it last week. The toil in Torah, the working hard in Torah, to really learn something once, twice, three times, till we understand, to ask questions, to research, to explore, to break your head over a piece of Torah. Why is that so important? Why does Hashem have to make it so hard for us? Why is it so important for us to really have to work so hard to understand Hashem's wisdom? Why can't Hashem make it a bit easier? Because then it would defeat the whole purpose. The whole purpose of us having the Torah, based on Moshe Rabbeinu's counterclaim, why Bar Metra doesn't, doesn't exist, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't apply here, is because it's about to build Hashem's home, but building Hashem's home only works if we build a home. That's the point of Dira B'Tachtonim. The existence down here below has to facilitate the home. Therefore the Torah has to become ours. And that's why Hashem gave us both parts of the Torah. He gave us the Torah. We know we refer to Shavuos as Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. We said this before. But really we also have another term called Kabbalah Satorah. We have to receive the Torah. It has to become ours. Right? Which is why, and I'll just end with this. One of the reasons that on Shavuos many people read the book of Ruth. Why? Why do I read the book of Ruth? First of all, because she worked hard to, to connect to Yiddishkeit. You can see that she's a, she's a prototype. She's a person who's, who's a symbol of working really hard to become part of Hashem's nation. Right? But also, there's an interesting aspect of, of, of Ruth. Because we know that one of, the, one of the things Hashem gave us in Shavuos, He gave us the Torah. What is the Torah? The Torah is Torah Shabbat Sab and Torah Shabbat Peh. The written Torah and the oral Torah. Right? And if you break it down a little bit, the written Torah, you can say, is Hashem's gift to us. That's, that's what we get. The Torah is Torah and, and that, you can't change it. How do we make the Torah ours? The oral Torah. By working hard, by, by the Gemara, by analyzing. Until today, by, by, by responding to new questions, by debating, by analyzing. By, the, the oral Torah is where the Torah becomes our Torah. We take ownership of the Torah. Hashem gave us the system, Hashem gave us the rules, but really the halacha is the way we interpret it, the way we take ownership over it. What was the whole concept of the book of Ruth? Well, the concept of the book of Ruth is the oral Torah, Hasso. The book of Ruth is about the ancestry of King David, right? Ruth was the great-grandmother of Dovod Amalekh. We know there was a whole problem in she becoming the grandmother of Dovod Amalekh. Because the whole story is that she married Boaz. The problem is that as she was about to marry Boaz, there was a whole problem. Because Ruth was, came from the nation of Moab. If you look in the Chumash, you'll see that a person, even if someone converts from Moab, you're not allowed to marry someone from Moab, even if they convert. Why? A, person, a, con- a convert from Moab may not marry into mainstream Jewish communities because it's punishment for the nation of Moab, how they mistreated the Jewish people when they came out of Egypt. They went out and attacked them and they, were gonna, they fed them the wrong thing and they were killed them, whatever the case was, right? So all of a sudden there's this big problem. This whole story is unfolding. Rus is at Boaz's field. He's, he's, a, 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 he's a relative of, of Naomi. She lies down at his feet at night. Boom, he's an old man, but yes, he's prepared to do it to carry on the name of the husband. The Yibum story, the leveret marriage, the whole story, and... Problem. She's from Moab. Rus Hamovia. So they convened the Sanhedrin. And through the mechanism of Torah Shabbat they interpreted the Psukim to understand, no, it doesn't work like that. The Torah says, Moavi Moavis. 
Only a male Moabite. They were the ones who mistreated the Jewish people. But it's hinted in the Torah. You need a Torah Shabbat to derive that. Only the Moabite male, but not the Moabite woman. Yes, a Moabite male convert cannot marry into the, into the mainstream Jewish community, but a Moabite woman could. And that's how, that's how Boaz married Rus. That's how David HaMelech came to be. And that's how Mashiach is going to come. Because you know, one of the stories, the whole ideas of Rus is that it's the, one of the ancestresses of Mashiach. It's one of the previews to the ultimate purpose of creation. How does it happen? Through Torah Shabbat Why? Torah Shabbat is us building the home. It's not Hashem's gift. And that's why we read Ruth on, on, on Shavuos. Okay? We'll stop it there. Thank you, Welcome. Yes.